Take your Bibles and turn in them to Psalm 24. Psalm 24. And uh, this has been our focus for the last uh, three weeks, and it will continue to be our focus today. And then into our Christmas Eve service services. And the theme has been simply this, who is the King of Glory? And uh, if you come on, um, what's Christmas Eve? I think it's Thursday night, is it not? Yeah. Thursday night is Christmas Eve. Uh, two services, one at five or one at seven, and we will wrap up this series on who is this King of Glory. It has been, uh, uh, I think, a helpful series, um, if not for you, certainly for me, uh, to spend some time in Psalm 24. I've never ever camped there for a little while, and it has been uh, amazing what it has done for my own personal view of God and for my own practical walking with God. The first thing that we wrestled with when we came to Psalm 24, and this has been our theme of Advent for this year, who is the King of Glory, is we wrestled with the fact that um, the King of Glory is, does anyone remember what the first thing is from Psalm 24 about who is the King of Glory? He is the Creator. He is the Creator of heaven and earth. All the stuff in it and everyone in it is His because He made it. He owns it. He reigns over it. He guides and directs it all. It's a stunning thing to know that you and I as children of God have access to that King of glory. The next, point, uh, next sermon, we spent a couple, um, verses in, or a couple minutes in verses 3 to 6. And we asked the question again, who is the King of glory? And do you remember what the answer was? He is the Holy One. He is the Holy One, the Savior of the world. And it was uh, kind of amazing that we, we mentioned that between verses 2 and 3, there's this sort of gap or this pause. And all of a sudden, the question is asked, who can stand in his presence? And we talked for a little bit, a while about the fact that this creator, this um, one who made everything in the world, is approachable. But he's approachable only through Christ. And so he's the Holy One, the Savior of the world. Uh, last week, we met at the community center and had a great time at the community center. And we asked the question again, and it kind of was stimulated by the kids and the presentation of the shepherds. And so we asked the question, who is the King of Glory? And do you remember what the answer was? He's Emmanuel, God with us. It's even more amazing now when you think about it. Here's this God who made the world and everything in it, who owns everyone in it. He is also holy, unapproachable, holy in power, holy in wisdom, holy in righteousness, holy in justice. And yet he comes to dwell with us. Amazing. And so as we think about then today, and we ask that question, who is the King of Glory? I think it's even um, uh, more significant for me as I work this through. The King of Glory is the Lord of hosts, the coming one. And so we're going to read the whole psalm, and it will give you a bit of perspective on how we've been approaching this question. And uh, you can review it on your own. And uh, we're going to spend our time in the last um, three, four verses, starting at verse 7. But I'll read the whole psalm. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. 
Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Father, thank you for our time these last four weeks and now particularly this next few minutes in your word. In the midst of all the messages and all the words that we hear in any given week on the movie screens or on the TV screens or on our radios or in the books or the magazines or in the conversations that we have, of all those words, they will fade away. But these words that we have read will never, ever fade away. They are the eternal words of God. And of all the words that we have listened to this week, apart from your word, they may be of some value. But they are nothing in comparison to the value of your word. I pray that you'll give us some sense of the richness and the benefit and the help that your word is to us in explaining to us about ourselves in telling us about you and leading us into the way everlasting. Thank you that these words are the living words of God. Make them live in our hearts, I pray today. In Jesus' name, amen. When we first began uh, three, four weeks ago, I mentioned I had been reading in a book and it's very similar to what um, A.W. Tozer said about God. This individual said, A lofty, transcendent view of God is the most important thing about a Christian. As a person's vision of God goes, so goes his life. One's life will never rise any higher than his thoughts about God. A high view of God will lead to high and holy living. On the other hand, a low view of God will lead to low living. No one can live any higher than his proper understanding of who God is. As our knowledge of God goes, so goes our lives. There is no greater study for the Christian than the study of who God is and of what God has done. This particular psalm, Psalm 24, has... Uh, its context is not really fully understood, um, but it has been read both at Christmas time and another time at the on Ascension Sunday. Ascension Sunday is the Sunday that Christians celebrate the the, the departure of Christ from earth back into heaven. After he had been raised from the dead, he walked on this earth for forty days and he spent time teaching and revealing himself to people. And at the end of those forty days, it says uh, in Acts one nine that when he had said these things. They were looking on, which is his disciples. He was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood with them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. And so this psalm is read in conjunction with this great promise that Jesus is coming back. 
And that's why the psalmist says, um, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may what? May come in, because He's coming back. As we think about this particular uh, 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 verses that we're looking at this morning from verse 7 to verse 10, there's four points that I want to make uh, today. Uh, the first one is simply this, that He is the King of glory. Have you ever heard of a kingdom of glory? We're very familiar with uh, the, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Uh, we, can, we can quickly understand that it's a parcel of land with a group of people over which a king rules and reigns. You can listen to advertisements on TV and every once in a while you'll see these ads by the king of flooring. What he's saying is that he has the most flooring, the greatest selection, the, the, the biggest shop, the most square foot, the best installers. He is the king of flooring. You can quickly kind of in your own mind figure out what the king of floors is. But when we talk about the king of glory, what goes through your head? And what is the kingdom of glory over which this king of glory reigns? Well, I think the best place maybe to start is just thinking about the word glory. The word glory comes from a Hebrew word, kabod, which means heavy or rich or honorable or impressive or worthy of respect or glorious. Its very basic meaning, though, is to be weighty or heavy. So we sometimes talk about talking about a person who throws their weight around. When we talk about that, we're not talking about a person who is overweight, that is a sumo wrestler and just kind of bounces back and forth to people. What we're talking about is somebody who has influence, somebody who has prestige, somebody who has authority, somebody who can come in and make shots or call the shots or make decisions. And we say of them, they're throwing their weight around. So when we talk about glory, it's one who has respect, one who has honor, one who has riches. There's a number of verses. I just read a few of them and give you a sense of this word glory. In Genesis 13, 2, it says, Now Abraham was very rich. That's the Hebrew word kabod. It means heavy. Abraham was very heavy. How is he very heavy? In livestock, in silver, and in gold. And so glory is a way of talking about one's wealth or one's riches. So if we think of riches then, and we think of verse 1 where it says, The world is the Lord's, the whole earth is His, everything in it, and everyone in it. We get a sense of the glory of God, or the, the wealth of Christ. And so this king of glory is wealthy beyond our imagination. He says, I own a cattle on a thousand hills. He says, if I need anything, I won't ask it of you. So the king of glory is wealthy beyond anything we can consider or imagine. Another verse is Numbers 22.15, where, where Balak is coming back to Balaam, and he sends now another group of leaders, more numerous and more distinguished that's the word here again, more weighty, more heavy than the former one. So he sent a group of, of sort of, oh, I'm going to get in real trouble if I use illustrations, so I won't use any political illustrations. But he, he sent a group of people who had some honor and some prestige. That didn't seem to do the job. And so he says he sends more distinguished men. And so this is a way of saying when we think of who is the king of glory, he is distinguished from everything and everyone else. He is separate from, he is other than, he is more important than. And so the king of glory is distinguished by his riches. He's distinguished by his position, by his wealth. Exodus chapter 20 verse 12 is a fascinating verse. We have quoted this probably dozens of times in our life. 
And it's one of the commandments. Honor your father and mother. Do you know that that word honor is the Hebrew word for glory or being weighty or heavy? So what it is saying there is that when we give honor to somebody, we are saying they are deserving of respect or attention or obedience because they are weighty in their person. Again, it's not because they are overweight or heavy. It's because of the position that they hold. And so we are to honor God um, uh, uh, because He is weighty, because of the position that He has. So the King of Glory then, when we said, who is the King of Glory? What should go through our minds, at least at the very basic level, is that He is the most impressive. He is the most wealthy. He is the most distinguished. He is the most honorable. He is the most weighty one in the entire universe. So we have an idea then of who this king of glory is. But when we say who is this king of glory, then what is the kingdom of glory that he reigns over? It matters that we get this stuff in our heads because it will determine the way that we pray, the way that we live, the way that we walk. So what is this realm over which the king of glory reigns? Well, we already know that his realm includes the heavens and the earth, all the stuff in it, every one in it. The psalmist says, on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. And so as he thinks about God and he thinks about the kingdom of God, it's all the stuff that God has done. It's all the stuff that God has said. It's all the stuff that the Bible tells us that God does. In another place, it says the heavens declare the glory of God. So what is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is the heavens. In another place, it says... That the, the, the angels in Isaiah's vision in chapter 6 says, the whole earth is full of his glory. And so the kingdom of glory includes the heavens and the earth. And so he is the king of glory, the most impressive, the most wealthy, the most honorable, the most weighty of every being, anybody created in the world. And his kingdom is the heavens and the earth. So that should run through our head when we ask ourselves, who is this king of glory? This is how the Bible describes him. Is he your king? Do you know him? The second thing that we see in this text is we ask this question, who is the king of glory? In verse 8, it tells us he is the Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. This is an incredible picture of this king of glory. It's one, though, which many Christians want to avoid and, in fact, want to excise from their vocabulary, which is stunning to me. There are denominations that have gone through their hymn books and they have excised any hymn that references God as a warrior or God going out into battle because they don't want to present God as a warrior God. Well, do they do that with Scripture then? Do they go through Scripture and excise any Scripture that relates to God as a warrior king? It says here, is the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Moses declares of God after they have made it through the Red Sea and the Egyptians have been conquered, Moses declares outrightly, the Lord is a warrior. That is such an encouraging thing, I believe, for us as Christians. Even as Shelley was describing the battle with the forces of evil one, I'm glad that I don't have to fight them by myself. That the Lord, my warrior, battles for me against the forces of evil. Have you often considered this in your picture of Jesus? 
that he's not only a baby in a manger, that he is the Lord, the mighty one, strong and mighty, mighty in battle. We come to, uh, I want you to flip if you can to Revelation chapter 19 with me for a minute. Revelation chapter 19. And this describes the Lord mighty in battle. And I want to take just a few minutes to point out a few things about this particular text. Revelation chapter 19, and I'll read verses 11 to to 16 and then make some reference to them. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. A white horse was a symbol of the victorious king. Caesar would ride into Rome after being victorious on a white horse. It's a symbol of victory. The one sitting on it was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like the flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. The name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses." From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is the Lord mighty in battle. The divinity of Christ is is so clearly proclaimed here by him being called the faithful and true, by him being called the word of God, by him being called the king of kings and the Lord of lords. These all confirm the identity of the rider of the white horse as Jesus Christ. Here is a picture of the victorious Christ riding forth into battle. And as we will see, though, it's not the last battle because there's no verb in the future tense in these verses. The battle has already been won. These verses describe not what Christ is going to do, but who he is. And Christ is the conquering king. He is the righteous judge. He is the captain of the armies of heaven. John makes seven um points of reference to this king and I won't mention I won't um, spend time in all of them I'll mention them all for you but he says he's called faithful and true you can find that reference in other places in scripture but also back in John his eyes are a flame of fire in other words they penetrate through us he upon his head are many diadems that's a that's a way of saying compared to the beast and the false prophet who had 10 diadems and a few crowns on their head Christ has many diadems a way of saying that he has many spheres of sovereignty. They are all under a single Lord. Verse 4 says he has a name which no one knows. I don't know if you've thought about that a little bit, but why would this be? Why would he have a name which nobody knows? Well, a name is a way of having power over somebody. When you know their name, you can call them. You can stop them. You can summon them. I've been reading a book on um, animals going extinct in Vietnam, and they won't name any place after a tiger because to name a place after a tiger is to summon the tiger. And so a name is a way of summoning them. And this is a way of saying no one controls God. No one controls the sum of Jesus Christ. We can't summon him at our will. But I think secondly, 
We do know a lot about the names of Jesus. At Christmas time, we think about him as the, 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 the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. With John looking at Jesus in the New Testament, describing him as he comes, says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John in Revelation will describe him as the bright morning star. So we have a lot of information about Jesus through his names, but they don't exhaust our knowledge of him. And by also saying that he is a name which nobody knows is a way of saying that the knowledge of Christ is inexhaustible. We can't come to the end of it. There is so much more to know about Christ than we will ever know. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. I've thought about that and I wonder if, 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 if that is a reference to the cross. Like before he even goes into battle, he's already got blood on his white robe. Where does that come from? Whose blood is that? How does that make sense? Well, I think that it's likely a reference. I know some might go to Isaiah 63 and make another reference, but I think this is a reference to his own blood that was shed on our behalf on the cross. And that that was the battle to end all battles. That on the cross, Christ defeated every foe, every enemy, sin, death. The evil one was defeated on the cross. And on his robe is his own blood. In fact, John, looking, or sorry, uh, Paul describing this battle says that God made you alive with Christ. And he forgave all of our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authority. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Verse 6, or the sixth one, he says, he is called the Word of God. That's a way of describing him as God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning and all things were made through Him and without Him was not anything that was made. See, He is the conquering King. He wins because He has created all things. There is nothing that can ever come close to overcoming Him or stopping Him. What political power? What economic power? What religious power? What spiritual power? When we think about the book of Revelation, can the dragon overtake Him? Can the beast overtake Him? This isn't a battle between equals. Christ is the conquering King. Evil is strong, really strong, but evil is no match for the Word of God. And in the seventh point then that John makes in Revelation 19 is that Jesus wins because on His thigh He has the name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. See, every human king or every human being has a king. Every prime minister has a king. Every president has a king. Every individual has a king. And the issue is whether or not we will admit it and face up to it. Our king is the king of glory. Will we submit to him? Will we let him into our life? Psalm 24 um, gives us a picture of those who submit to the king. Lift up your heads, O gates. Open up, O ancient doors. Let the king of glory come in. The question is, is will we submit to him? Will we acknowledge him? Will we accept that he is the king of glory? I think about this, and, and maybe, maybe you have too, but such a cool thing. Why is it such a helpful thing? Why is it such an important thing? Why is it so thrilling that we have a mighty king as a mighty warrior in our lives? 
Have you thought about that? Does it, does it matter to you that your glorious king, this king of glory, is a mighty warrior? It matters to me, and it matters to me because the Christian pilgrimage is a war. The Christian life is one of combat and conflict because I get beaten up and bloodied on a weekly basis. We don't live in a benign or a neutral world. Again, as Shelley mentioned, it's, it's not just kind of a, a peaceful, joyful, happy kind of place. There is a malign opposition and evil at work to deceive and to destroy us. We are hated. There is a war that's going on within us and without us. We are to fight the good fight to the very end. I identify with Yahweh as my mighty warrior because I battle every single moment of the day. In a couple of weeks, we'll turn to First uh, Peter and begin a, a short series on that. And I, the, the verse has been so meaning to me. Abstain from the fleshly lust which wage war within you. There is a battle that every single Christian faces almost every moment of their day inside. But we have a battle outside of us as well. We have a battle in the spiritual world. We have a battle in the physical world. Just look at what's happening overseas and and around the world as Christians are daily being killed for their faith. We are in a battle. Think for a moment. This King of Glory is mighty in battle. This tells me that this King of Glory is not just a God of this nice little sanctuary that we're in, but He is a God of the field that I go into every single day. He's not merely a God of the shrine that I might build in my backyard where I read my Bible and pray, but He's also a God of the marketplace when I go out to work and when I go out to school. He's not only a God of the church, but He's a God of the foxhole where I fight it out and battle it out day by day. He is no fair-weather God. He is a mighty God, strong and mighty, mighty in battle. I'm happy and comfortable knowing that He is able to come to me in the midst of my battles, in the midst of the war that I find myself in, and He is able to defeat the enemies around me. He is able to fight for me when I'm weary and when I'm crushed and when I'm tired. He fights on my behalf. As one person wrote, you have no comfort if the King of glory is a wimp who reeks of hand cream. You only have solace if he is defender, your defender in the thick of war. You know what he's saying? My God is not some softy. My God has got calloused hands. He's got blood on his robe because he's out there battling for me. I wanted at this point to play the hallelujah chorus. referring back to that that great line in that hallelujah chorus, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. Who is the King of glory? He is the Lord, strong and mighty, mighty in battle. Is He your King? Do you know Him today? The third point, is who is this King of glory? Verse 10 answers that, the Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. That, that um, little name, the Lord of hosts, is a significant name. It's used over 285 times in the Old Testament, only twice in the New Testament. I think my favorite word, which is similar to this, is 
pantokratos in Revelation. It's used nine times of Lord Almighty. But this, he is the Lord of hosts. Well, who are the hosts that he is Lord of? Well, there's at least three. They are the armies of heaven or armies of the earth, sorry. God is the God of all the armies of the earth. It doesn't matter whether it's ISIS or the United States Army or the Canadian Army or the Kenyan Army or the Chinese Army. He, they are his host. They do his bidding. They go as far as he says and only as far as he says. He raises them up and he lowers them down. He is the king of hosts. The Bible also says, though, that he is the king of the hosts of heaven. And Micaiah said, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven was standing behind him, beside him, on his right hand and on his left hand. All the armies of the spiritual realms are controlled by the Lord of hosts. And thirdly, there's the celestial bodies. There are the, 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 the moon and the stars and the planets and the things which people worship. And it just blows my mind that they follow them in their horoscopes. When you can read five horoscopes from five different papers and they all say something completely different. And yet people pattern their lives after following the movement of stars and planets. My God is the Lord of those things. So he's the Lord of the hosts. Then the armies of the earth, the armies of heavens, and all that is in the heavens. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the winds and declares to man what is his thoughts, who makes the morning darkness, who treads on the heights of the earth. The Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. The Lord, the Lord of the armies of heavens, or the Lord of hosts, touches the land and it melts. All the people mourn. But the God of Israel, He is no idol. He is the creator of everything that exists, including Israel, His own special possessions. The Lord of hosts is His name. Our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, is His name. When captured in all its breasts, the name of the Lord of hosts is the most exalted title. It means King of the world. King of the universe. He is the Lord of hosts. He is sovereign over all. He is God over all. He guides and directs every every force, every power, every army. There is nothing that lies outside of his control. The title affirms his universal rulership that encompasses every force or army, heavenly, cosmic, or earthly, Yahweh is not simply one warrior God among many. He is the supreme God. And as a result, He is sufficient to lead us to overcome any crisis brought by anyone anywhere against us. He is the king over all the nations. Isaiah tells us of an encounter that changed his life forever. He says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two they covered their face. With two they covered their feet. With two they flew. And one called to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of His glory. He is the true commander-in-chief. Who is the King of glory? He is the Lord of hosts. He is the ruler and the commander over the entire universe. Do you know that you can pray to Him? Do you know that the Bible encourages us to use that and to understand and remind ourselves of that title from time to time? 
as we come to him in prayer. O Lord God of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You made the heaven and the earth. When you're up against it tough, when you're in a battle at work, when you're wrestling at home with your kids, when you're in trouble at school, you can cry out, O Lord of hosts, come to my defense. And he will come and he will fight on your behalf. David prayed, restore us, O Lord of hosts. Let your face shine that we might be saved. Who is this king of glory? He is the Lord of hosts. Is he your king? Do you know him today? The final point is simply this. Who is this king of glory? He is the coming one. Lift up your gates, or lift up, uh, sorry, lift up your head, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors. Why? So that the King of glory may come in. There's three real quick references, I think, to that in my mind. I'll mention them very quickly. One is a historical reference. I believe, to the best of my ability, that the best uh, understanding of the historical context of this, although it's difficult to be certain and to, to narrow it down to one specific instance, I settle for the view that likely sees the Ark of the Covenant arriving at the gates of the city of David after the troops have enjoyed a victory, some victory out on the, the, the battlefield. And as they were coming back with the Ark, the Ark signified the, the presence of God. And in fact, as they, when it arrived, it was as though God Himself had arrived in the city. And so the historical context was a sort of a personification of the gates and the doors of the city that burst open, that opened wide so that the presence of God could come in. So there's a historical context. I think there's a future context. And that is what we read from Revelation chapter 19, that the King of glory is coming again. That is a promise that you and I have. Just as the first coming was um, prophesied and fulfilled, the second coming is prophesied and will be fulfilled. But there's a third application, and I believe that's an application to you and I personally. All of our hearts and lives are a castle, so to speak. All of our lives have walls built around them, walls from so many different experiences, so many things of life. And we want to control our own destiny. We want to control our own lives. We want to control our own world. We want to be the king on our own throne. And this psalm is a way, I think, of reminding us that we are not the kings. And in fact, there is a king of glory who is far greater than anything we can imagine. And he is willing to come to us if we will open our lives and let him come in. It's a stunning picture when you think about it. The one who created this universe and everything in it. The one who owns it all. The one who is inapproachable because of his holiness. The one who is the Lord of hosts of all the armies of heaven and earth. He will come and live and reign in your life and my life. If you hear him speaking to you today, I would say open up your heart. Open up your doors, the doors to your life. Open wide the gates of your life and let this King of glory come in. Let's pray. God, you are sovereign over all of heaven and earth. The inhabitants and possessions of both of them are yours to do with as you please. Who may ascend to your holy hill? Who may stand in your holy place? Only those to whom you have given a clean hands or a pure heart and clean hands. 
You apply to us the blessing of salvation by giving us the righteousness of Christ by which we might approach you in worship. We seek your face again this morning because you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords because you are the King of glory. Lord, hear us as we pray this this morning. We want you to come and be part of us. We want to lift up our gates. We want to open wide our doors and let you come in. We pray this in Jesus' name. So who is the king of glory? He is the creator of heaven and earth. Who is the king of glory? He is the holy one, the savior of the world. Who is the king of glory? He is Emmanuel, God with us. Who is the king of glory? He is the Lord of hosts, the coming one. That's my king. Do you know him?